This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by Chartpack, parent company of 14 art supply brands including Grumbacher, Molotow Markers, Higgins, and Cullinore Drawing Supplies. Pens, pencils, paints, and paper, Chartpack has it. Check out Chartpack and their brands at chartpack.net. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Joining us today via Skype is Chris Kinky, Chair of the Foundations Curriculum at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's great to hear your voice today, Valerie. Yeah, it's really exciting. All this internet technology things occurring, it's definitely magical, for sure, for sure. Well, I thought, you know, you could kind of begin by telling us a little bit about who you are as an artist and as an educator. Cool. Well, I... As an artist, I make images and paintings and installations, and primarily I started out as a painter and really as an illustrator in college, and earlier than that, started out as a drawer, so I've just been drawing since since my earliest memories. But lately, and I say lately, maybe the past 10, 12 years, I've been incorporating digital photography and chemical photography into the work I'm doing, and that isn't uncommon for painters, but what I've been doing is really taking these digital images and printing them out large scale and then painting back on top of them. So literally kind of creating a a hybrid sort of archaeology of painting and photography mixed. I also do these really large scale installations using the most fun material I've ever found, and it's just large vinyl stickers. So I get to just make huge stickers and stick them on the wall and then cut them out and have a blast making all kinds of things that you can see on my website. Being an educator... Yeah, something I've been doing for a while is teaching, and so I've been doing that since 1997. Most of the time, my focus has been in undergraduate studies, and a lot of that has been within the foundations area. So I've been teaching foundations or non-major classes since 1997. Wow, incredible. And so when you were growing up, you said you've always been drawing. So were your parents really supportive of that? Was that something that you sort of always knew that you were going to become an artist? I didn't know, I really didn't know any other artists. I mean, my mother's a good drawer, and so she was supportive of of me drawing. I guess she just had scrap paper and pencils and stuff like that around the house all the time, and she did drawing, so I kind of saw her do that. But uh, there's photographs of me, like, in diapers drawing. So I don't even know, like, I don't know what I was thinking at that time, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. But they would just give me paper, and I would just do all kinds of drawing, just obsessively draw on. I'm sure, I, I, in fact, I know I went through that stage where I did dragon drawing. Do all, you oh, know, Everybody nice. does that. Draw to <laughs> dragons. And, and I did that phase where you, you draw battles and wars and all kinds of things that are more role-playing rather than actual drawing, I guess. And <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've always known that. I loved it. It kept me out of a lot of fights on the playground. Like, a lot of times, like... If, if kids, you know, you start to get bullied and other kids step in and be like, don't mess with them. That kid can draw. 
and that happened a lot to me when I was young. And oh, wow. So that was the kind of thing that sort of saved me because I had this, I don't, I guess I had this talent that other kids recognized and they'd be like, don't mess with them, that kid can draw. Impressive, impressive. That's- so how did you go from dragons to graduate school then? Like, how did that happen for you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> my goodness, that was a long time ago. So I, how did it go? I mean, I was lucky in high school. I guess I, I didn't really know... I didn't know there was such a thing as art school. And so I got really lucky in high school. There was a guy uh, named Bill Stevens who like mentored all of his high school students into art schools. And I think he probably channeled, well, I don't know how many eventually, but he was always a big uh, champion of the Columbus College of Art and Design. So he would pump maybe three or four kids every year to CCAD. And I think that happened throughout his whole career in high school. But he, he taught me that, you know, you have to have a portfolio. There's such thing as scholastic art awards, national portfolio days. And, and so really uh, brought me along as an artist and at, at the high school level. And I, I ended up going to art school. And that's when I learned a lot of, I mean, like everybody does, you know, when you get there and you go into your foundation year and you look around and you see like, oh, wow, there's like a lot of kids just like me. I'm not the best artist in this group any longer. And um, mm. and that's a little, you know, that rattles the nerves. I think we've all, as educators, we've all seen that. But I also was really invigorating for me because then I was challenged and there was lots of people doing things I didn't know how to do. And so you start to meet people, talk to them, ask questions, and it grew from there. Wow, incredible. So you went to CCAD. You know, I didn't. I was one of the oh. rebels in Bill Stevens' class. <laughs> And I didn't want to go where he went. I'm like, I don't want to go there. You're, you're funneling everybody there. <laughs> Not, and, and I should say, there's nothing wrong with that school. I just didn't want to go there. Sure, uh, sure. So I ended up going to the Kansas City Art Institute in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay, that's right. Because when we were walking around at the conference last spring, you were like talking about all this stuff about when you were in school there. And I was like, wait a minute. Did I make that up? Did, did, did you go to Kansas City Art Institute? And you did. Okay, got it. I got did. It. Yeah, I got there. I got there in 1990. So I started. I started college in 1990, and uh, I went for illustration. So I was in the design department, and that's where the at the time that's where the illustration program was housed. So that was my kind of home. When we went back, you know, this fake conference was just uh, last year. Things have changed. So the buildings that I was in are still there, but they're they're assigned to a completely different group of people than programs. But it was great. I got to go back last year and return to the illustration program and give a talk to all of the illustration students and they're just an amazing group of people there's around 95 majors in their illustration program wow. and they were yeah they're just so excited to hear you know an alum and I've been gone from school for too long <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know they wanted to know well what do you do when you leave here so I just basically gave them a kind of a, a rough narrative of what I've been doing since I left college and just what the potential is that they could, that what, what it is that they're looking forward to in t- 5, 10, 15 years after mm-hmm. they get out. Yeah. Well, and, and so if you could travel back in time, sort of back to the future style, and you could talk to yourself as that like incoming freshman at KCAI, I mean, are there things that you wish you would have known or that you would have been able to uh, remind yourself of? Well, I'm a first-generation college student, so I, I guess I would, knowing now what I know, I would give myself a lot of advice. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Like, quit failing all your classes, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, I guess I would, I would, I would talk about just time management skills and being better at being because time management in art school, we talk, we say that word a lot, but it, it, it sort of means it sort of means that you have to look after yourself, right? This is, it's a self-managed day, and so a lot of the work you just can't put it off. You know, you just have to start right away with each project you're given, or you fall behind really quickly. And my weakness in art school was the humanities. I, I just, I didn't study, I didn't write papers. And I think my, in fact, I think my professors just passed me with a D out of pity. I don't, <laughs> I thank God they did. I'm so glad, I'm so grateful that they actually did pass me because I, I learned to be a better student. But yeah, I would go back and just kind of talk, talk to myself about taking it a little more seriously from the beginning. I think mm. that's, that's my biggest takeaway looking back yeah no I mean I'm I'm the same way I I it took me a really long time to be like oh this is I'm supposed to go to class here Mm -hmm. wow (laughs) yeah so so you had been drawing your whole life and was that something that always came easy to you in terms of that skill set you know drawing the figure or drawing things from from life do you feel like that was something you didn't have to put extreme amounts of time into because it was something that just sort of came to you well so drawing from life and drawing from from the figure that did take more work I think the thing that came easy to me was just not being afraid of drawing so I would just try things and I didn't have a I wasn't really conscious self-conscious of doing something wrong I would just try it out and so the the drawings that came from my head the things that I would create sort of from my imagination or that I would visualize and then put out on paper, they came very easily. Drawing from life was definitely a skill I had to learn. It made sense to me because it was a visual learning. So I was able to kind of, I I think in regard to drawing from life, I was a pretty teachable student. A, I wanted to be taught. So I made myself teachable and B, I could, the things that were being instructed to me made sense. So I could, I could try to put those into practice. So for that regard, it wasn't a fr- it was not a frustrating process at all. A definitely a time-consuming process. I I wouldn't say I just naturally could draw the figure. I was always that student who draw the outline first and then draw the interior later. So and that never works. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I had to figure out why I'm supposed to draw the things I can't see first and draw the things I can see toward the end. But I had a lot of really good instructors, and I think by the time I graduated college, I, I had a pretty good grasp on how to do that. And, and then after you got your undergrad degree, did you take time off before you got your MFA? Absolutely. I, by the time, well, so yeah, by the time I got to my junior year in college, I didn't want to be in school anymore. I really, I think I just felt like I'd been just jammed through this tunnel from kindergarten on and I I really you know I didn't want to do what people are telling me to do anymore I, it's the same reason <laughs> I probably didn't go to the Columbus College of Art and Design I just didn't want to do what even my art teachers are telling me anymore <laughs> and so I was so excited when I graduated I thought okay fine I'm out I, I had no idea what I was going to do next I was terrified really but I knew I didn't have to do school anymore and that was great for the first time in my life, I time wasn't sort of divided by semesters or by, you know, the bell or periods or classes. or So it was, it was really free an experience for me to be able to just sort of walk away from that. I really didn't want to go to graduate school. I didn't really know because I went to the Kansas City, City Art Institute. There's no graduate program there. So I didn't mm-hmm. actually again, I kind of didn't know there was graduate school. I mean, I'm, I was aware that there were universities at that point and art schools and 
I just didn't really know what that meant. You know, what did a graduate program mean? What did furthering your studies really, really do for anybody? And that didn't happen for about three more years. And then I, I had moved back to Rochester, New York, and I was making artwork and living in a loft studio. And it was actually uh, one evening, we had a dinner party at our house, and there was a couple people there, and they asked me, well, what are you going to do with these, what are you going to do after you finish this painting? We're talking about an artwork. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to make the next painting. And they said, no, what are you going to do with your life? And I thought, good God. <laughs> Really? I mean, I know we're drinking wine right now, but if you want to know, that's a big question. Right, right. <laughs> and um, so they were more specific. They said, no, actually, like, are you thinking of graduate school? Or, I mean, where are you going to go with your career, I guess? And, um, mm. and I said, well, I don't know. I've never really thought about graduate school before. And he said, well, you need to go to the glove factory. That's what you need. And I said, I, what's that? I don't, what, what is the glove factory? Right. And uh, he said, well, Carbondale. You need to go to Carbondale, Illinois. I said, I, that's not helping. I don't know where that is. And, and, um, <laughs> and of course, this is pre-internet, so I couldn't pull up my smartphone and look. So Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, was what he was talking about. And I actually called them on the phone and requested a paper package of material. Oh, and, nice. Uh, and I got it in the mail about a week later. And that was the first time I'd really looked seriously at what it would take to go to grad school. And so I did. A year later, I actually applied to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and also to SIU Carbondale. I got in and I chose Carbondale because they offer tuition waiver. I mean, that was one of the big, the big draws to me was that this was graduate school for free, you know, and th that, that actually, again, not having a lot of money, not being, you know, independently wealthy, that was a, that was a big draw. In the end, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I chose that. I don't think I was that grateful when I arrived in Carbondale. I was... <laughs> I almost left, actually, when I got there. Oh, my God. I need. I almost, in a couple of weeks, I almost just drove back to Rochester. Oh, no, um, why? Because it was just such a strange place? Or it such just a really rural, yeah, such a really rural town, aside from the MFA program, which is a really great program. There wasn't a lot of other cultural activities to do in Carbondale. At that point, Carbondale, SIU, was really known for its drinking culture <laughs> <laughs> at the undergraduate level. And uh, I just... I wasn't that big of a drinker, and I wasn't an undergraduate. So, But that all turned around. After my first year there, I got a phone call from the graduate studies, uh, from the director of graduate studies, a man named Michael Onken. And, uh, you know, he called me up in the middle of the summer, and, and I said, well, hi, Michael. What can I do for you? And he and starts talking, how are you? How's your summer? And I said, well, great. But can I ask, I said, is this normal? Do all directors of graduate studies call their first-year students just check in <laughs> and he said well actually no I have a proposition for you he said how would you like to go to Scotland for a year what and I said wow Scotland like the country like not here in the United <laughs> States yes he said the country <laughs> and I I said well yes but couldn't you have called me yesterday I just bought a car I literally oh, bought no. a car that day <laughs> yeah. it's too funny <laughs> Um, but to make a long story short, the uh, SIU has an arrangement uh, with this organization called Hospital Field House in, in Scotland. And it is, an, it is an artist residency, and it's a 30-acre property on the North Sea. And, um, and so I was, I was asked to go over and be their first residential fellow. So I spent the year in Scotland looking after this artist residency, and that was in 1998. 
And that was the first time I'd ever traveled outside the United States. So that really changed the course of my life. And so I have to say that from the, when I first stepped foot in Carbondale to the, uh, one year later, that place had managed to radically change my life. How incredible. So then after you got back from Scotland, were you then teaching or TAing or was that happening while you were in school? It was. I mean, so it's a three-year MFA program, and that's really similar. That's actually the same length of time here at the University of Illinois uh, where I teach now. My first year, I was was a teaching assistant, and I was was actually a lab assistant. So there was a large lecture class, and then I taught the studio component in a lab. Mm-hmm. And then my second year, I was a, I was a residential fellow, so I, I didn't have any teaching duties. And I was over in Scotland for the year. When I came back, I was also, they gave me instructor record duties. So I was a, a teacher for a couple of classes in the graphic design program. Maybe they called that visual communication. And then I also was the uh, assistant to the director. So I was kind of the person who did lots of work for the director of the school. Oh, Wow. And That's then a I got a job. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was good. I, I, but I was in the studio almost every day, right? I mean, you know, as a graduate sure. student, that's kind of what you do. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. incredible. And then right after you got your MFA, you scored a job, right? I did. The College Art Association is a, a clearly right. That's the preeminent conference in our field, I guess. And they have the job fair. So in 1999 or 2000, that year, I went to the job fair, and I looked into back then there was all tables right and there was all like there wasn't booths and stuff it was pretty open it was pretty brutal actually as an inter- interviewee <laughs> but right <laughs> up front there was a table and it said it had this picture of a building on it it looked like at the time i thought it looked like the university of virginia i thought it looked like something that jefferson thomas jefferson would design big domed thing and i went in and it was a place called the american university of Sharjah. And I didn't know what that was, but they were looking for foundations positions or advertising for them. And so I put my package in, um, not really knowing what I was just signing up for. <laughs> and I did that to a bunch of other tables. And I was going to go to lunch. And before I went to lunch, this is, again, pre-internet. So I went to go look at the job board, and it was there was a message for me. And it was from this place called the American University of Sharjah. So I went to the, to the table and... They wanted to set up an interview, and, and the man behind the table said, well, why don't you sit down now? Do you have a moment? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so he said, why don't, we talk, why don't we talk for 15 minutes now, and then, and then, you know, we'll go from there. Well, that turned into an hour and a half discussion. He followed me every day for the rest of the conference to see if I was still interested in the position. Oh, wow. So, you know, and it was followed up with phone interviews and things, but I ended up getting a job at this place. And at the interview, he asked, he said, well, do you have questions? And I said, sure. Where is Char- what is Sharjah and where is it? <laughs> I love it. And, right? I mean, That's I had amazing. to be up. I had to be Yeah, of course. Clue. Right. And again, no, no smartphone to look it up so I could look smarter. I, I had to really ask the <laughs> dumb questions. And he said, well, it's in the United Arab Emirates. And I said, that doesn't help me at all, actually. Where is that? I have no idea, you know. And uh, <laughs> he said, oh, it's in the Middle East. And I was like, oh. I do know where that is. I have to admit, before I ever moved to the Middle East, I was a little bit afraid of the Middle East. I had some some biases stemming from the Lockerbie bombing of of in the nineties. Right, right. Um, uh, uh, several of our several students from my high school were on that plane when it exploded. 
Oh, really? Because they were a lot of they were Syracuse University students who were on the plane when it when it went down. Right. So I had a sort of a kind of a maybe a second, you know, one point of contact away from, from you know, I knew people. So I had a I had a fear of it, I guess. And I always was at the time I used to associate the word the, the city Beirut with like hell. I mean, just like because that was in the Civil War in the 1980s. Beirut was a, was in, in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I just had this weird sort of unconfirmed fear about that place. I went and looked it up on Amnesty International when I got out of there because there was internet cafes back then. There, you know, I you remember to to that, a, yes. You had to go to a building where they had the actual like desktop computers and log in. Yes, and they were like sweaty and just like super germy. Like. Yeah. Totally. Keyboards were like with the go- a little yellow, and they were all shiny. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Wow! So you looked it up, and what did you discover? Right. So in this very sweaty yellow terminal, I looked up <laughs> that that it it did have the United Arab Emirates had some crimes reported by Amnesty International, but I, I read them, and then I I sort of just I thought, well, I wonder what that's like. So I looked up Illinois because I because that's where I was living at the time. And, and it took me to a whole separate website just for the state of Illinois. And, and I looked at how many crimes against humanity Illinois was being accused of by Amnesty International. And it was, mon- it was monumental. And I realized wow. that, oh, I, I guess, I mean, if I'm living in Illinois and I'm not even noticing that, then this seems like maybe I should, I should look into this further. So I did, and I got the job, and I moved over there. It was a two-year contract. So I kind of explored the world. And that was the start of, of, I lived overseas for six more years at that point. I got tenure when I was there. Um, I started a foundations program. So that I was hired as one of three other people to help build a, a, a foundations program, which at the time wasn't really, ex- didn't really exist. So it was all new to me. I mean, I, you know, and I was a university professor for the first time and brand new part of the world. Uh, no yeah. kidding. And what kind of students were you teaching that must have been a huge jump from southern illinois i mean in terms of the student demographic absolutely my my plane ticket leaving southern illinois to to go to sharjah started in i, I think it's the carterville airport <laughs> which is oh. a, which no one has ever heard of except for people who live in marion illinois it's like a little regional airport that, that takes you to big airports where you can get on large flights. So I flew from Carterville to, I think it was like Chicago, and then to Amsterdam, and then on to Dubai. It was one hell of a ticket. But the, the students that I taught there, well, the university was the first co-educational university in the Arabian Gulf. So that was the first, that was a first there. And then it was the university's all English instruction, and it's, it's still there to this day. And so the students were from all over that other side of the world, really. I mean, there was definitely students from Saudi Arabia. There were students from the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, students from Iraq, students from... But then we, we go broader, and there were students from Pakistan and Iran, Afghanistan, India. We had students from Mexico, Greece, all of different countries in Europe. And occasionally, you'd have the occasional American or Canadian. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a pretty wide range. It was a school of architecture and design. So it was um, not art, but architecture and design where I where I worked. So you just sort of jumped in hardcore to all of this stuff. I mean, you moved across the globe and began teaching and 
professing and, you know, uh, that's incredible. I mean, were you ever scared? Were you ever um, homesick? Or did you ever just feel like, what have I done? <laughs> I, I was, was I homesick? Not really. By that time, I guess I was nearing 30 years old. So I, I don't know that I was homesick. I wasn't scared, surprisingly. I really, I had prepared to read, uh, I practiced reading and writing Arabic for about six months and mm. thinking, you know, I'm going to need to like, if I'm going to drive, I'm going to need to know like what the exit is and, you know, stuff like this, like just basics. <laughs> I get there and there's a gentleman, you know, with, the, with my name on a card at the airport waiting for me and I get into the car and he's driving me back and I see all of the signs are, um, are in Arabic and English. Everything is in Arabic and English. And I thought, oh, oh wow. my God, I just spent six months <laughs> learning to read this, and I didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really just, every day just seemed to like blow my mind. Like I just learned more and more things about, about that side of the world and people from all, all, all walks of life that I had never met before. So I, I didn't really have any of that. I didn't have any of that fear. It was more just like this sort of overwhelming sense of learning. Like every day seemed to just be like something new. Like from really silly things, like I'd never seen a bidet. I didn't know what a bidet was in the bathroom. Like, what right. is that? What is, what's that piece of furniture? Uh, <laughs> which is ridiculous. And there should be films about Americans trying to figure out what those are. Right, and what they're supposed to do with them or whatever, yeah. Oh, my God. That would be a YouTube sensation for sure. You could just have <laughs> Americans playing with bidets. Like, that would be funnier than the, the Seinfeld show that's out right now. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and... and, and how do you feel like it changed your work or changed the kinds of things that you were making or the kinds of things that you were drawing? It, it changed it pretty drastically. I, I, um, in graduate school, I was working really abstractly. So I painted a lot with, uh, I was using fairly traditional materials, canvas, uh, paper, oil paint, a lot of abstraction, sort of in the vein of abstract expressionism or maybe some, and kind of a blend of that with maybe surrealism and then maybe some I guess neo-expressionism, right? So from the 80s and 90s. Sort of that mixture of, of types of artworks. But as I was going along, I kept feeling that abstraction, for me, it's like a guilty pleasure. Like I love painting abstractly because it's so sensual and it's so immediately gratifying to move materials around and the squishiness of all the material. I just love it. But when I'm done, and they, I, you know, they make beautiful things to look at, but I always felt like there was something... I didn't feel like I could comment on things that were around me through the language of abstraction. I felt like there are limits to that language, and I was needing to move beyond them, but I, mm. I didn't know how. And when I moved overseas, since it was such a radical shift, you know, like you just described, everything kind of changed. I kept, I set up a studio and kept trying to paint the work I was making in graduate school, and it just failed. It just was, it just didn't have anything, it just felt empty. It felt like a husk. So mm. I stopped painting. I literally, I just stopped painting. I was given a Macintosh computer. And uh, this is a true story. So uh, in my interview for this first job I had, the dean of the, of the School of Ar Architecture and Design said, well, what, what kind of digital skills do you have? <laughs> this is what I said to him. I said, well, I have a university email account, and I know how to check it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That was my entire digital ability. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I mean, at that time, that's sort of what most people knew how to do, you know? I mean, that was sort of it. 
Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was given this computer and it was on my desk when I arrived and I thought, I guess I should learn how to use it. So I, I started to explore the software package that was given to me. And that's when I started to really kind of move into the, the digital world. And it was... Um, my introduction was through digital photography. So I had done a lot of chemical photography in graduate school. And so I started by just learning how to convert the chemical photographs to digital files. Mm. And, and that made sense to me because then I had a task. I could like do it, you know, and I had hundreds of these photographs to sort of translate. And so by the time I got done with that, I, I could really get around Photoshop pretty good. And that, that's what, just what started my interest in exploring all the potential of what I could do with the digital tools that were at my disposal. So that's what I started to do. I switched and I started making work that was photographically based. And then 2003 came along and we started, uh, we, the United States of America, started building up toward the war in Iraq and and the invasion of a sovereign nation. And then the buildup was something that I was helpless to, to stop or to, you know, there was no way to, to, to sort of halt that juggernaut. So I started photographing, I just set up my camera and a tripod and started photographing the television screen, like kind of as a way of bearing witness to these events that I, I was kind of powerless as a single individual to, to affect in any way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I photographed kind of obsessively up until there was this point where George W. Bush was, um, the president at the time, was standing on the back of an aircraft carrier declaring mission accomplished. I don't know. Oh, right. I remember, remember that. that. Sure. Yeah, a very famous image that um, clearly didn't wasn't accurate, given that we've been in Iraq for so long since then. But but that's and I, I just turned the TV off. I thought, well, I, I didn't I didn't know what else to do or say that summer. Got back from summer and met up with my friend uh, Tarek El Gusain who is a, a wonderful artist, photographer, and was also the, a faculty member at American University. And he, he comes to, we, we would meet once a week for coffee. So he throws this photograph on my desk. He says, check this out. And uh, Tarek is known for practical jokes. So he throws this picture on my desk, and it's a picture that I took of the television screen. And I said, oh, I said, seriously, are you breaking in my computer now? What are you doing? Like, how come you have my picture? You know, like. What, what's what's next, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm on guard right at this point. He's like, that's not your picture. I took that photograph. I said, no, you didn't. I got like 800 photographs on my hard drive of, of me and of during the Iraq War. He says, hold on. So he goes and gets his laptop and opens it up. And sure enough, he'd been doing the exact same activity the whole time I was doing the same activity. We had, we're doing this completely separate. We did not know. Uh, I didn't know he was doing this with the tripod and camera, and also, likewise, he didn't know that I was doing it. Oh, that's that's incredible. Well, that's what we said. We're like, this is re- like this kind of coincidence cannot be ignored. So from that point on, we started two things. We decided to work together to exhibit this work, and we started photographing again. And so we ended up with a there's a sort of archive of around two and a half or three thousand images that he and I collectively took over the course of three years, yeah. and we were photo. Yeah, so we photographed uh, from the invasion through till I think 2005, and we and, and by doing that we were recording other things too. We were photographing like the death of a pope. Um, we began the colonization of Mars with our Mars rover robots. You know, there's all this stuff going on, and so over the course of a couple of years, there's an incredible archive of, of tragedy, folly, 
uh, victory, uh, all kinds of things. And so we ended up displaying this artwork called The War Room in, um, in quite a few international venues. And that's really what kind of changed the direction of my work. So I, I began to just use digital media almost exclusively up until I moved from the Middle East. And in 2006, I left and moved back to the United States. And then that, that was another shift in, in my environment and so another shift in the work. I'm curious, that experience and then that collaboration and that sort of habit of recording and archiving what's going on, how, how did that make you feel about being a white guy or being an American or, you know, being in that space at that time? Well, it was interesting because I was, I was so connected to so many young students, right? I mean, as, as mm -hmm. professors, right, you're always getting older and they're always staying the same age, you know, that sort <laughs> right. of, it's like Groundhog Day, except you're aging the whole time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I remember what really got me to think about more critically analyzing the images that I was photographing so not just bearing witness anymore, but really starting to think about them more and unpack the content and the meaning that was being conveyed. I had this uh, this young student from the United Arab Emirates. She came up to me one day, and she was so shy about asking me this question. She said, sir, I have a question I have to ask, but, well, I don't want you to get mad at me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and I, and I, don't want, I don't want you to think I'm trying to insult you. And I said, well... Uh, so she said, so you have to promise not to get mad. And I said, well, I said, I can't actually promise that. I don't know what you're asking, but I don't, I don't think I'll get mad. How's that? And so she says to me, as she looks at the, she looks at her feet at the ground, she goes, well, sir, are you a redneck? <laughs> and I started laughing and she did. I, I think she got even more nervous because now she's like, what is she, what is she thinking? Right. And I said, oh, um. No, I don't think so. I said, what's your, well, what's your definition of a redneck? I, I don't, maybe we're thinking two different things. <laughs> she said to me, well, sir, your, your neck, it's so red all the time. You're sunburned. And I thought maybe you were a redneck. Oh like, my goodness. <laughs> literally, that's what she thought. Oh, and I was like, oh, interesting. no, that's not what rednecks are. So immediately like five other students came rushing to the table because they were also listening and they're like well what is a redneck then we want to know <laughs> can you unpack <laughs> this word for us <laughs> that is so interesting wow wow that, right so that conversation came up so i explained to them what a redneck was and it turns out there are lots of rednecks in the arab world as well and i don't i can't remember the word in arabic for them but very similar kinds of people you know live in rural areas underprivileged not a lot of education kind of insular communities mm -hmm. but they also started talking about they at the end they're like you know thank you for talking to us they're like you're not like all the other americans and i i said well gosh how many other americans do you know and they said well just you <laughs> <laughs> wow. so well well just in case you ever wanted to know there's more people like me definitely there's a bunch of us and i said what are all the other americans like and they're like well you know you guys are all kind of rich and you drive fast cars and you like to have sex and you like to shoot at things with your guns. And I thought, oh, yeah, right. No, that's not how most Americans are. But that's what they see on TV. Of course, yeah, that's like in movies in or on MTV yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what they read about in books. Or they see it in the, in, the, you know, in the television news reports. And it's what we broadcast to the world. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, we are what we broadcast. 
so that revelation led to also then kind of the work I do now. That combined with working with Tarek on the War Room, really, that has fueled a lot of things I've been doing really ever since. I mean, I guess I've been working around those issues of identity and how we construct identity as an individual, how we construct identity as societies, as mm-hmm. cultures, right? How, how those things are portrayed and how we, even even my fellow Americans believe a lot of the things that, that we see on TV, that that's who we are, you know, this sort of overinflated sense of patriotism or this sort of blind faith in nationalism. These are really dangerous paths, right? They lead toward fascism and, um, and that's really the opposite of being American. So, um, so that's one of the things you got to teach students is how to be skeptical, how to be investigate and find out what the actual motives are and what maybe the, the multiple types of truths are behind a statement or behind an image. I think Mm -hmm. that's pretty key. It definitely is. And I mean, to be curious and be willing to, you know, not be afraid. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just so impressed. I mean, you, you just have been so willing to try new things or just admit, I don't really know how to use a computer. <laughs> like, I don't really know where your university is located. And just to, to admit that you don't know something. I mean, I think that's, that's such a crucial part of learning and being teachable and just being, being open. Yeah, absolutely. I have a few mantras that I use with my students over time. I've kind of gained some of those, but they reflect what you were just talking about. One of them is that I always, I always tell students that if you ask no questions, you get no answers. And, and so I always tell them, you know, you've got to ask questions. I don't know that you don't know something, or I don't know that you're confused, so you, you just have to ask me, and then I can help clarify what it is that, you know, you want to know. And so the other one that I've come up with is this formula that I, I just say, it's, it's this formula that says, what if equals try it out? And as educators, I'm sure you've had it too. Students will often come up to you and say, well, what if I did this? Well, what if I changed the project? Well, what if I tried this idea out without having a sketch in front of them or a maquette or any, anything? Right, right, absolutely. And I said, well, what if you ate chocolate cake right now and didn't wipe your mouth? You know, like, what if you did anything else? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, you have to try it out. But I think what you're talking about is worth trying out. And no matter what the idea is, I always tell them that, that I think it's worth trying it out. You know, I think you should do right. it and then let's talk about it. Yeah. You know, and that's really the key is, is just getting them to kind of move in that direction. Because, I mean, I, more and more I see it. And I think probably a lot of people who will listen to this blog will, will, um, will recognize it. But students are really now fully that generation of no child left behind. And they've been tested like to an inch of their life. But I look at it as that they've been asked all these questions all their life and they've been given four answers. Three of them are always wrong. So that means they've always had a 75% shot at screwing it up since they were kindergartners. That's so true. That's so true. And they walk into my class or my program and, and we say, well, I don't know, try it out. And they freeze up. Like, of course, they're not adventurous or curious. They've never been rewarded for that. They've never even been told to do it. So, it, you know, I feel like now it takes it takes a full four years to try and get a student to kind of trust that this idea of trying things out is really the way that the way that good ideas are developed. And rote learning is it has a certain place in, you know, gaining information, but but it doesn't have a place in gaining courage. And so that's where that's where I really end up having to try and teach students and try to change the way they think about approaching a problem 
and it's harder and harder every year because they just they've never had a chance to really do it and be rewarded for it right and it's really just heartbreaking to really think about that and really unpack that just how they don't really feel like they have permission to you know to be curious or to fail or to try things you know it they want to be right and they want to do it well which is admirable I mean you know that's great but but so often that just leads to rage quitting you know because if it doesn't work out the first time then they're just like well I suck at this and I'm just gonna become a truck driver which is a great thing to do but it, it's just they just want this like instant gratification of, of something working yeah and I find interestingly I find a lot of the students who who don't have that attitude that you just described are athletes or have some background in athletics or dance. Yes, definitely. Or they've played the piano since they were five or they, they understand that there's a process involved. Yeah. Right. That's really it. That, that there's this, it takes a long time to acquire a skill or to even really come to an understanding of taking ownership of an idea. You know, there's a difference between being exposed to an idea and even kind of saying, Oh, I, I see historically or contextually why that's happening. But then to take ownership of it and really kind of comprehend it, I mean, that takes a long time, right? And and that's maybe that's like the gold standard in transitioning students from high school to after college is this idea of comprehension and lifelong learning. That's a much harder goal. But in that first year, it's just to get them to try it out, to tell them if you ask no questions, you're going to get no answers, you know. So those are some of the things I really I really push with the students and I talk to them about things like that it's, it's important you know, sure. it's, it's, otherwise they can't do the field that they're applying for you know design or art or whatever else they're interested in right well and do you have projects or activities that you felt like have helped in the classroom for them to feel more comfortable in terms of the artistic process you know it's interesting every uh every project that is like maybe the foundation project I'm most excited about tends to be the one I'm working on right now. Oh, and, nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get the one that I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm teaching a class called uh, expressive drawing and it's freshmen. It's first year students. And we're working on a large color collage. So it's 40 inches by 30 inches. They're big, massive things. And they're really just like magazine cutout color collages of portraits of people and a lot of them are themselves a lot of them are selfies but not all of them so they have to find all these colors that match and what they're really learning is that these projects take weeks and weeks and weeks and they still aren't really good at self-directed projects yet they're really not good at just having that much time and, and using it wisely so that's one of the learning curves I'm spending time with right now is every day kind of walking back in and saying you're not where you should be and here's why and then of course, the last two days before the, the current project was due, I think most of my class probably spent two all-nighters trying to get the work done right, for the critique. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's so that's where I'm at right now. It's just an exciting way for them to also kind of undigitize the world. So they're used to looking at images in the, in the digital on a screen, essentially. And this is so tactile that we use gel medium to glue it down. It's messy. It requires buying dozens of printed magazines to get the colors you need. And it takes a sustained effort over time. So those are some of the soft skills that I'm trying to get across in these longer projects. That's really, I mean, that's kind of one of those keys is that doesn't address the curiosity and all the other things, but it does address that sort of self-sustained 
like how do you do that over time and succeed? And that's really sure. hard to do. Yeah, it is. Really, I mean, it's hard for anyone to do. I think they're they're doing a little bit of curiousness, if that's a word. <laughs> maybe maybe it's not. We can always edit that out. But um, <laughs> but it seems like having to really look, you know, and find the colors and really understanding observation and seeing and you know, I think that perhaps has some overlapping things in terms of what you were talking about. I do. I think I think that's right. There's there's the idea of really observing something, and I think that's still maybe one of the most important parts of observational drawing in a curriculum is that you're really getting them to look at something for a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if they're just doing the traditional drawing a studio chair, I mean, to someone who's been doing it for 20 years, you feel like your eyes might fall out because you've looked at chairs for so long. But to the to the freshman student, the thing is, as an instructor, you have to remember, it's their first time doing it. That's and it's their a big f- deal, yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal, and those lessons are, are brand new to them. They might not be to you as an instructor or professor, but that doesn't matter. You know, what matters is that it's the first time to them, so you have to really make sure that you keep it fresh, you know, in, in the way you talk about it to the to the students. And then they start to think about things like, oh, that's not a chair, that's an elliptical shape. Oh, that's not a chair, that's a negative space, you know, under the footrest. That's not a footrest, you know, that's an arc. And so we can mm-hmm. start to switch some of their colloquialisms to formal vocabularies, and that's really key too, right, in that first year is, especially at state schools. I think at art schools, students come a little more preloaded with some of the formal terminology, but right. But at, at public schools, you know, they, they come from all sorts of backgrounds and they don't always have the idea of what is a negative space, what's a, what's a void and what's a volume. And so I start by naming things, you know, footrest, chair, tabletop, and then we later switch it to rectilinear form, you know, and then they get it. And that, that helps with uh, students, all sorts of students, you know, including international students whose first language is not English. And so right. just trying to get to get them on board with with a language that everyone can kind of use in a critique and articulate what they mean fairly accurately. That's a really that's a major part of first year studies too. Sure, sure. Well and you're you're talking about all this process and time and you know, you have a career as an artist, you are a professor, you're doing all kinds of things, whether it's leadership things or administrational things. I mean, how do you make time for being a person, having a family, you know, um, going outside, all of those things that are obviously important to, to the human experience? I wish I was better at those things. I yeah. am not always so good at them. Right. And so always something falls by the wayside right now making artwork is a big part of what I'm doing in the past few months. I have a a show coming up at Luther College in April, so I've been really pushing hard to get the paintings ready for that exhibition. Um, I think I just finished the last one the other day, which is great. That's exciting, yeah. It is. I I think it's ready. Uh, The other thing I've been having to focus on a lot lately is family, so my kids are really active. I have two kids um, that are in um, elementary school, and my stepson's in high school, so just busy kind of with their lives and activities and so Mm -hmm. I ran up to Chicago yesterday for a gymnastics meet and then came back so I was I drove like seven hours yesterday in a car and sat in a gymnastics hall and watched my son compete and Mm -hmm. um, and the whole time I'm typing emails on the smartphone and trying to keep up with other things and so the balance is never a balance it just seems like I'm trying to stay one or two steps ahead I am 
learning to be way better organized over the years since I've become an administrator. I've just had to really become a lot more organized and make sure that I stay on top of that because that's the one place where I really have to stay up to date is that sure. a lot of other people are looking at that. A lot of other people are relying on that. So I really, you know, if I fall behind there, I end up making a lot of people fall behind. And so that doesn't work out too well. Well, that doesn't work out at all. So, <laughs> right. um, so that's been a part where I really have to keep kind of just a steady focus but yeah, there's times when the artwork comes and it's it's all or nothing. And then right now it's kind of at the tail end of an all moment. Mm-hmm. And, and then pretty soon it'll have to switch over again to midterm grading and academics and all of those things. Sure, sure. So I don't get to go outside very much. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the way that you described all of that, I mean, it just sort of falls in line with what you're talking about in terms of things that are happening in the classroom. It's like you just have to sort of be open to the process. And I mean, I think this this idea that there's this balance that we're going to reach at some point, we're going to be wearing this really great outfit and have this cool hairstyle and like everything's mm-hmm. just going to be like gelling and we're going to have this total harmony. I don't know if that's real. I mean, I really don't. No. It seems like there's just this constant crop rotation you know and just trying to do your best and trying to be present and trying to be aware of sort of what what's happening i like your idea of crop rotation i think that's true right you're always sort of thinking when when you're in the middle of the one thing growing you're actually plant your your mind's like forecasted into the next season exactly yeah so that happens a lot and and you know (laughs) i'm not always good at that because i'm really much better at focusing on the right now right in front of me but I've, that's an acquired skill, and I've learned to be better at sort of forecasting. I've learned to be better at thinking ahead and really trying to figure out what I'm going to be doing next semester or next year. Well, and, and how did you get involved in FATE? Did, did that happen when you were overseas or when you got to the United States after teaching or in grad school? I got involved in FATE. So my first, my first conferences um, that I ever went to, remember I was working at a school of architecture and design, Mm-hmm. And so the, at the time, the chair of the architecture program was a woman named Nadia El Hassani, and she said, "Oh, you you should go to this um, first year beginning. It's called the Conference on the Beginning Design Student, and it's essentially uh, an architecture specific first year conference. And it mm-hmm. happens. I want to say it happens every year. Actually, they're they're a great group of people, and they're <clears throat> mostly first year programs out of architecture programs all over the country." So I went to those. I went to two of them, actually. Um, they were great experiences. And when I moved to back to the United States, I, I took a job at the Savannah College of Art and Design. And that's where I really heard about fate, because a lot of, a lot of faculty members at SCAD are heavily involved or have been from time to time over the years uh, with, mm-hmm. the organi- with fate organization. So I... I I thought, well, what is it? And I looked into it, and I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's great. It's like this conference on the beginning design student, but even more in my area of expertise. So I think the first one I went to was Milwaukee. Okay. Um, 2007 or eight. I don't remember the date now. Mm-hmm. So I just went as an attendee. I, I, I might have presented at a on a panel. I think I might have presented on, I think it was Stephen Bleicher's panel about mm-hmm. – Creativity in the classroom. It, uh, that's a stretch. I don't quote me on the exact title of that one, but, um, but I'm impressed that, that you can even recall any of that. That's that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think the next year at a faculty meeting, uh, Maureen Garvin, who's the dean of um, the School of Foundation Studies. Oh, she's great. She's great. She's lovely, right? She's 
I don't know how she manages to juggle all that. That would be a great question to ask her. Oh, she juggles. sure. Yeah, no kidding. She has so many hats that she wears. Just Herculean amounts of work. But she was asking for, they were thinking of organizing a regional conference and, and hosting it at, at, on campus at SCAD in Savannah. And would there be anyone interested in kind of um, kind of helping out? And everyone kind of looked at their feet like, oh, I don't know if I want to get involved with a lot of volunteer work. <laughs> <laughs> Which is normal, right? When you're asking for volunteers in an open meeting. Yes. So afterwards, I went up front and I just said, uh, do you need help? I said, I'd, I'll help you run it. And it, really? She said, oh, yes, that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I helped organize this regional conference, and it turned out to be really big. Like 104 people showed up or something. Oh, wow. This is a massive regional event uh, that I did not originally intend. certainly didn't plan on a regional event of 100-plus people. But it turned out great. And then from there, Scott Betts was the president of FATE at the time. Mm-hmm. And he had come for the regional event and was um, just kind of getting more involved with getting to know Maureen Garvin and some of the faculty members, myself and other people. Anyway, that ended up being that Maureen asked to host the national conference in 2013. Right. And... Uh, her and I had a conversation, and I said, "Well, yes, I would like to, I would like to be involved in that." And um, and through that conversation, I ended up being the vice—I uh, forget the title—I was the director of the conference, but vice president for biennial conference, I believe. Is right, the right, is the official title. title. Uh huh. Yeah. So that's how I got onto the board. I guess I got onto the board as a regional coordinator, and then for two years building that really large post house conference, which kind of pushed fate over the edge into. Uh, I don't know, we had 600 attendees or something. That It was a big conference. It was big, and the keynote was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Rest I in know. peace. I know, I know. Rest in peace, Tim Rollins. Exactly. And I, I mean, I will never forget when I got an email from you. I didn't know you. I was totally just baffled. I just, I went to FATE for the first time in 2011 in St. Louis and um, learned a little bit about like regional events and thought, well, I don't know. I'd like to know more people around where I, where I'm teaching and maybe I could do this and oh no, what if no one comes or what if someone comes or all those nervous feelings. And, um, and so I had the event and I think I had to send in something, you know, like for a newsletter or like photos of it or something like that. And then you sent me an email and said, Hey, you know, we're planning this conference in Savannah and we're, you know, if you have it, have you thought about putting a panel together? And I just thought, what, what? Like, I don't know if I could do that. And I just thought, well, how exciting, like this person I don't know is like encouraging me to do it. Well, I'll just do it, you know? And so I submitted and I mean, I just, I don't think I've ever like thanked you for that, but I really appreciated it. You are welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe you just like went through your entire, like everyone that you knew and sent them the the exact same email, but (laughs) it was very meaningful. (laughs) Well, you know, it was a little bit in between. I, I, I did, I, I wrote to everyone. So one of the ways that I grew the conference was just writing to everyone I knew that was really interested in foundations teaching and that had been somehow actively involved in, in fate before. And I think you popped up because you had to express some interest in a regional conference. And I, and I right. thought, oh, okay. So, so then that to me was like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to write to you. And I wrote to a bunch of other people as well that also had the similar kind of activity. 
But it wasn't as mechanical as just going through the entire membership. I didn't, I don't think I no, did No, no, of course. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it was very encouraging. And then I submitted a panel and it got accepted and then, you know, it just sort of all went from there. Yeah, that was a, that was a big deal. So, I mean, that's how I got involved in, in, in fate. And, um, I also was involved in, I was on the board of Integrative Teaching International for a while. So that was, <laughs> um, Think Tank, right? And I was right. really involved in the think tanks more than I was in the other parts of that organization. Yeah, that was a huge, I mean, that was, I think, four years. And that's when I got to know, uh, professionally, I got to know Mary Stewart, Jim Olniski, Richard Sigismund, you know, some of these, some of these people who are really instrumental in organizing the original think tanks. Right. Um, and they're just incredible, incredible mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah. Like generous beyond generous with their time. And I think that's where I learned I think that's really where I learned some of my leadership skills was just watching them with their time and, and how, I mean, I've used the word now three times, how generous they were with their time to, you know, people like me. They didn't know me. They didn't have to be who was I, but they were, they were great. And the conversations led to all kinds of, of new insights into what it meant to really be a, a university professor, but even it was more specifically, you know, to teach in that first year, that transition from high school to college. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time today and chatting with, with us. It's been so, so wonderful. Thank you for thinking of me. Thank you for having me on the blog. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty honored that I'm part of that tradition. And I would say it's a tradition at this point. I think there's over two dozen of these interviews now. So it's yeah. an impressive collection of people. It, it is. And you'll soon be given an opportunity to nominate or some folks for the future because that's that's how you got on here because Mary Stewart gave me your name. She was our very first episode and she said, what about Chris Kinky? <laughs> well, there you go. That's, yeah. that's even, even more incredible. And Mary has just been so instrumental in helping really kind of professionalize the whole area of foundations pedagogy as as an organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. And it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.